if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Recently, our parish hosted a traveling exhibit that reviewed the various Eucharistic miracles that the Church has recognized over the centuries. These were occasions when, in some extraordinary way, God chose to reveal His real presence in the bread and wine, consecrated as His body and blood. And while the exhibit was going on, we held Eucharistic adoration in the chapel. For those unfamiliar with the practice, the priest places a consecrated host, a wafer of the consecrated bread, in a kind of display holder called a monstrance that's set upon the altar. And because the church teaches that it is the body of Christ, the faithful are invited to pray to Christ before it. Now, you don't get much more Catholic than Eucharistic miracles and adoration. So, I thought it would be an interesting experiment to invite Ed the Protestant to come over to the parish and have him experience the exhibit and adoration. But, I didn't tell him about it in advance. I just told him that I had a surprise for him and to drop by the parish this afternoon. When he arrived, I had our pastor bless his new rosary, and then I let him tour the exhibit, and then I sent him into the chapel for a little while to experience adoration for the first time. And while he was doing that, I set up the recording equipment in a classroom, and when he came out of the chapel, I sat him down right away and recorded his first impressions. So, this is Ed the Protestant reflecting in real time, just minutes after reviewing the historic Eucharistic miracles and experiencing his first adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, shoot me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. So, Ed, we're sitting in a room here at the parish, not at our outdoor secret compound. Right. We can dub in nature sounds later. We'll, we'll dub in nature yeah. sounds later. Um, but we're here because you just had uh, an in interesting experience. Mm -hmm. So, we are hosting a, an exhibit that is traveling around the United States over the last couple of years that is uh, a series of panels mm -hmm. that display some of the Eucharistic miracles that have occurred throughout history mm -hmm. that the Catholic Church has recognized. And this exhibit came about partly as the work of a young man in Italy about 15, 20 years ago named Carlo Acutis, who has been beatified. And when we post this, we'll post some links to all of this so people can understand. But this was a young man who got very excited and interested in the Eucharist helped do the research, 
to compile the list of all of these Eucharistic miracles. He died of leukemia, has since been beatified, is entombed in Assisi. Uh, and I've met, had the opportunity to visit his tomb. Uh, it was really wonderful. Uh, but then subsequent to his passing, the Vatican uh, compiled all of his research into this sort of exhibit regarding the Eucharistic miracles that occurred throughout history. And so you had an opportunity to come over, watch the little film about Carlo mm-hmm. Acutis and look at this exhibit cataloging these miracles. And then while this is going on in our chapel, we also have Eucharistic adoration happening, which you have never engaged in before. Didn't even know about it. Didn't even know about it. And you just in, uh, took part in your first Eucharistic adoration. And so fresh from that. Right. I wanted to have you share your impressions and what you learned and what you felt about it. This is experiential in a way that I'm utterly unaccustomed to, okay? In the Protestant world, I am asked sometimes to, in a church service, to be silent or to meditate or, or something, um, but it's almost never connected to anything. And you and you and I've talked about how, you know, when we were Protestants, we were both on church staffs at one at some point and we were expected to pray, set aside a day to all day to pray. But after about 15 minutes, I'm out at McDonald's because I'm I'm all done. I don't have any there's no form to this. I, right? I, I never played hooky on prayer days. Do not slander me that way because someone's <laughs> gonna listen to this podcast and say, hey, 25 years ago you took a prayer day and you went to McDonald's. I did not. I sat there. I was, I fell asleep. Right. My mind wandered and I was often bored and I found myself thinking about going to McDonald's. Right. But I had the self-will to stay there at the retreat center. So is this like, um, like having anger in your heart is the same as murder. You wanted <laughs> to go to McDonald's. Anyway. Uh, I sinned in thought, but not in deed. Right. I, I was, uh, yes, I did one of those, one of those prayer days and it was like, <clears throat> utterly unmemorable. I, I tried, you know, anyway, so, so the, the, the seeing the video first about this young guy, uh, very moving by the way, um, um, with his dedication to, to what he was doing and, and his, his attitude about God and attitude toward the things he thought were important. And, and then seeing the, the, uh, the exhibit, which lots of these big cards with you know explanations of things and some pictures and so forth um it, it was it was it was uh i i was i realized i was being asked to believe things and i think if you had asked me to believe these things five years ago i would have said oh come on like there's a little wafer turned red and like who cares? You know, like, like in, uh, Ghostbusters when there's the, um, the, uh, in the, in the library in the basement, there's all that goo and Bill Murray is just rolling his eyes and the other guys believe, right? Um, so, uh, but it's, it's not five years ago. It's now. And I was, I was thinking, okay, I'm being asked to believe this, but I'm asked to believe a lot of things. I guess it depends on who's doing the asking. Um, I can't mm. verify any of this. I can't, I wasn't there. Some sort of stuff happened, you know, uh, uh, 
a millennium ago, right? I don't, I don't know. And you said this in a, in a uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago. I think it was, no, it was well longer than that. It was the Mary podcast. Mm -hmm. And you said, you know, the, 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 uh, Protestant world has a hard time believing the things the Catholic Church believes about Mary, but they have no trouble in believing other things that aren't talked about nearly as much in the Bible. And I have been asked when I was a Protestant to believe in this miracle or that miracle, and it's a word that people toss around, right? right. So it's, uh, you know, a miracle happened. I, I ran out of gas, and when I pulled into the gas station, I didn't know how I was going to get home, and then I saw a $20 bill on the on the ground or something. Right. right. Well, okay. So, so what is it? What you know? Yeah. All kinds of things I'm asked to believe, but these things were at least asked in the, I don't know. They're asked in a sense of, uh, it's a sense of reverence about these things. And of course you've explained to me that these, that if the Vatican, um, the powers that be are, are saying this is a miracle, they have looked into it. They have, they have, they have, you know, uh, and, and the people who believe these things, it never seems self-aggrandizing to me, right? Which, which is great. Uh, and then afterwards sitting in the, uh, in the chapel, like, I, I don't know what am I, what am I supposed to do? Well, there were a couple other people in there and a couple of them were writing things down, journaling or whatever. And somebody had the little prayer bench pulled out and was praying and I just, sat there. I didn't know what to do, but it was this. So I was basically meditating, I think, and it was way different, way different than, than just sitting in my Jeep thinking about things. It was, it was very similar to, okay, so we talked about the rosary. That episode just came out as we we're recording this. And I have been, uh, I've started praying the rosary. I'm learning it. And I found that to be moving in the same way as I found sitting in, in the adoration to be moving because this was about something and there was, there was a form to it. And that's the thing I have, I think I have missed. Mm. Does that make sense? No, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Let's, let's kind of go back over that sure. a little bit. So there were three things that you experienced here in the last hour or mm -hmm. so. The one was the film about Carlo Acutis, mm -hmm. who has now been beatified. Right. And so I'd like to talk about that for just a second, because mm -hmm. this is a young man on his way to becoming a saint. Well, you know, if he'll get all the way to sainthood, but he's, right. his cause is being advocated right. towards in that direction. And so I think it's interesting to reflect on what do saints really look like and how do they, how do people become saints? And here we have Carlo Acutis, who's a young man who just, 10, 15 years ago passed away and his cause is being advanced. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting to talk about that. And then the second thing is, as you mentioned, these miracles, the Eucharistic miracles and being asked to believe those and the nature of these miracles. I want to come back and reflect on some of the things you said about that. And then your experience of adoration. So when we look at the saints from a thousand years ago, mm -hmm. there's enough historical distance between us and them for it to be, I'm not saying anything isn't true, but you see only, it's a historical figure. Right. 
right? And right. there's a certain distance between us and them that in a positive way allows us to just see sort of the conclusion of it. Right. 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 So you're, you're not living in somebody's story. You're seeing the final presentation right. Right. in some sense. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. You're seeing uh, from a 800 years distance or a thousand years distance, what we have surmised about this person's life. Right. But when you look at someone who is relatively contemporary, like Carlo Acutis, mm -hmm. Here's a young man born in 1991, passed away in 2016. Six, I, six, I think he was. 2006. He? Yeah. 2006. So that's just, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, 16 years ago. And so, you know, that's in our lifetime, in our memory. We can think about this kid and we can think about him doing the things he did and, and building these websites with the Eucharistic miracles and all the interesting things that he did. And I, and I just want to reflect a little bit about, or hear you reflect a little bit about, what would a saint really look like? You know, a thousand years from now, somebody look, look back at St. Carlo Acutis and say, well, he was this young man who did these amazing things and died while he was still a young man, and he communicated and was passionate about these things. But we're sort of looking at this guy, this young kid who's, you know, is building websites and all that. We're sort of close to it. Right. And, and so I guess I'm trying to reflect a little bit on what the nature of somebody becoming is. What, what would a saint really look like? Right. And, and one of the things I, I, well, I, I listened to, um, Chesterton's book. It's easier if they, someone reads it to me. <laughs> I listened to the audio version of, um, Augustine, I think, and then Thomas Aquinas. And that, that was already made a difference to me. I, I began to understand that this, you know, this, like you said, this stuff unfolded in real time. And I, I am now starting to see, I think that, that these, that these were real people who at the time didn't of course know the end of the story and didn't know any of this. And this young guy, Carlo, he didn't, you know, he wasn't bucking for sainthood. I don't think, I think he just was, you know, was doing what he what he thought he should be doing. One of his teachers said that Carlo would say that it wasn't what he, um, it wasn't that he was bringing good things to God. Is was that he was giving himself to God, and that that sacrificial quality, right. really, you know, like he was, he was going. He couldn't sleep at night because there was a homeless man nearby, and he was right. wanted to bring him a sleeping bag. You know that. That helps when I think about who's a saint, and and it was easy for me in my in my in earlier years to think, well, I don't know, some guy from five hundred years ago. But you know, of course, there were people around then, and right. But when you this works the other direction too, right? I mean, when you see somebody who, as you say, in real time that we're more close to because they're part of our right. era, whatever. On the one hand, you know, you can say, well, gee, is that really a saint? Because I'm thinking of, you know, St. Francis and St. You know, so-and-so and St. such-and-such. Yeah. Um, and there's historical distance. But on the other hand, you have a, a chance to sort of see what holiness actually looks like. Because if we think of the saints right. as being people who lived extraordinarily holy lives, and then now we look at somebody in our era, just a few years right. away from us, we can sort of see a model and I always think that's kind of what the saints are for us in, in some way is, um, is models. It was a you much more of a challenge to me to, uh, personally to watch this young guy's life because he's, 
you know, I was alive then. Um, could I do right now what he was doing? You know, it's, 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 it's easier and harder or whatever. It's different to say, well, I don't know what I, could I have walked around in a, in, in a, in a robe with a, with a brown belt and, you know, and, and, uh, and could I have just, you know, walked around praying and stuff? I don't know. Is that well, what, it, is that what it takes? In essence, we, we, those ones that are distant, you know, a thousand years in right. the past, we romanticize them. Right. They become, I don't want to say they're cartoon figures, but they, right. a lot of the, the detail gets, you know, They're far more two-dimensional. Yeah. But when you look at somebody like who actually lived, you know, 10, 12, 15 years right. ago in our time and place, you're now looking at somebody. When we ask ourselves, when we talked about this, you know, for the last year on this podcast, one of the things about Catholicism is trying to figure out what sanctification looks like, right? Right. Not just how we get saved, but how do we live a saved and holy life, right? Mm -hmm. And when we look at somebody like Carlo Acutis, we say, this is what it looks like to be a teenager mm -hmm. and live a holy life as a teenager. And I thought in that film was very well produced because they talked to some of the, the young people who were his friends when he was, mm -hmm. ten, you know, eight or 10 or 12 or you know, 14 years old. And they told stories about what it was like to be around him. Right. And I find it challenging to not just hear that I should, as I did in my evangelical days, not only to be, to hear that I should love Jesus, but to have somebody who you can point to and say, this is a model for what loving Jesus actually looks like. Well, I could put myself right in his shoes. It's all very modern. And then I can compare and ask myself, well, how do I stack up, right? How do I stack up against St. Francis of Assisi? I don't know. I even know how to, I don't know where to start there, right? But I can, I can, I'm definitely challenged by this story. This is, this is right in my face, you know? Right. Yeah. Here's, here's a young man who, you know, you, you, they tell stories about the ways that he lived. And, right. and so I think that's one of the things about the saints is there's a lot of things we can say about the saints. We talk about their intercession for us and so forth. But, but one of the things is that they are practical models. Right. And as we've talked about so many times, it's not just about getting into heaven. It's learning how to walk toward it and begin to live right. sanctified lives. And the saints are these wonderful models that I don't think we ever had those, at least that I was aware of in Protestantism. Right. You know, there's a, there's one or two or three, you know, people that you might hold up and say, Hey, uh, I can name a couple of people, you know, hey, Jim Elliott was the missionary who got shot by right. the people in the Amazon taking the gospel to them or a couple things like that. But you go, who are my models? Well, there's no, there's no point in it because in Protestantism, we are just, um, once we accept Jesus as our savior, there's no real, we're not pushed or prodded or motivated to become more holy. Yes, we should. We know that, but it's not, a, it's not that big a deal. I think it's interesting that, that so many of the people who amount to Protestant saints they don't have saints they're not saints but they sort of amount to protestant right, saints right. are all missionaries because the idea is that once we get saved then the extraordinary way you live the holy life is go to the amazon or go to here right. or go to here and be a missionary to those people and i'm not degrading that at all those are right. wonderful things and there are many catholic missionary saints right but but what we don't have in protestantism is many examples of people who lived the holy life and can serve as models for us. Right. And I think that's one of the things about the Catholic saints, the role they can play in our lives. And I think when we look at contemporary 
um, people on the road to sainthood like mm-hmm. Carlo Cutis or even some others that have been uh, canonized right. that are relatively recent, we can actually, you know, you, you're crazy. You don't have a video of St. Augustine. You don't have a, right. a video of uh, St. Francis or whatever right. that you can pull up and go, I can watch him walk and talk and speak. And, right. But when we watch these people, you go, no, I'm seeing it. This is, this is, what, this is what a sanctified life looks like. So, yeah, it's in, it was inspiring watching the video. I, um, yeah, I found myself comparing myself unfavorably. <laughs> and, uh, like one of my pa- pastor, a former pastor of mine said, nobody is ever in a complete waste. You can always serve as a bad example, right? So. <clears throat> okay. So after you watched the Carlo Acutis film, then you had a chance to tour the exhibit. Mm-hmm. And you were mentioning at the beginning that you're being asked to believe these miracles. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to explore that idea a little bit more. You alluded to, and I think it's right, that as Protestants or as Bible-believing Protestants, we believed in miracles that were very akin, that were very similar to the kinds of miracles here. Right. But in a sense, for most Protestants, the age of miracles ended at the close of the New Testament canon. Yeah. And yeah. so it's strange, and I think this is what you were driving at, because on the one hand, as a Protestant, I was told to believe that all these kinds of things can happen and God can right. do these things and th- that God works through these miraculous signs, but he just doesn't do that anymore. And right. When you look at the Eucharistic miracles throughout history or some of these that the church has deemed worthy of belief, your Protestant instinct rises and goes, this is ridiculous. That sort of thing doesn't happen. And yet I feel like that's a little schizophrenic because it's not that it doesn't happen. Essentially, the Protestant saying is it doesn't happen anymore. It's a much... I'm finding Catholicism to be, and we've talked about this several times, to be a much richer experience. Uh, these <clears throat> Eucharistic miracles in particular were, um, they, they were for a purpose and people's lives were changed and the people who experienced the miracles appeared to understand. And, and, and that's not the same as there, there's no, when I hear of a, of a, a, a Protestant person tell me, well, there was a miracle and here's what happened. So-and-so was, so-and-so, uh, I was at a, I was on a missionary trip and somebody got healed. They were blind and now they, you know, heard those stories, never experienced any of that. Um, that's great. I love to hear that, but it's not, it's not connected to the rest of the Protestant world. It's just a thing that happened and nobody it just happened there and it happened once. And I, you know, here I look at these things and I think, well, this has, this has been, um, this has been, these miracles have been investigated. These, uh, there, there's a huge body of, of, uh, believers who believe this, the, the, the church hierarchy believes it and so forth yeah. and so on. And now I'm, I, this is, a, this is me being, again, being connected. You, you said in the beginning, one of the things about believing in miracles is ask who who's asking you to believe right right so if it's ufos or bigfoot or this or that what's interesting about this is that in a sense the church has investigated these and deemed them worthy of belief now to be clear for the listeners when the church says something 
a miracle like this is worthy of belief. It does not obligate you to believe it. So mm-hmm. it's not an article of faith. There are articles of faith. You have to, we, we are required to believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Right. We are required to believe that he rose, you know, on the third right. day. Those are articles of belief. The fact that the Eucharist turned to, you know, literal flesh and blood in Lanciano, Italy, 1,200 years right. ago, the church has deemed that as worthy of belief, but we're not required to believe it. Right. And yet the church, in a sense, has given its imprimatur to this thing. It has stamped it. And so it comes with some degree of credibility. The other thing that you're pointing out that I think is about pointing and is about pointing out is that these miracles all are signs that point back to God. Right. So there's a big difference. And I think this is different between, say, you know, believing in magic or crazy things. Like if you go look at these panels, here's what it doesn't say. One day there was this priest and he was trying to get across a river and the bridge was out and God sent miraculously turtles, a whole series of turtles who formed a bridge so he could walk across. Or one day the Pope was trying to, uh, you know, deal with some problem and God sent a flying horse and flew the Pope to wherever. Right. They all have a consistent theme, and that is that they're all pointing people back to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right. That's the whole point of the Eucharistic yeah. miracles. They never add up to anything more than simply saying, this is my body and this is my blood. And whether that's a manifestation of making that visible through uh, showing the, the, you know, the host bleeding or the thing with the fish bringing the thing right. back or right. all these kind of interesting miracles that you have, have occurred throughout history. The only consistent, the one consistent theme through them is that the only thing that they point to or their their only point is to point to Christ and to point to uh, the real presence of Christ Mm -hmm. uh, in Mm -hmm. the sacraments. So they aren't random, crazy, miraculous, magical things God does. They're all God reiterating and occasional. So there's only 135 of them that the church recognizes in the last 2,000 years. Right. Right. So what's the math on that, right? Like less than one every century. Right. And so, you know, 135 times over the last 2,000 years, God has done some extraordinary thing to once again redirect our attention Mm -hmm. to the presence of Christ. And I think that's what one of the things that makes them extraordinary. We're not being asked to believe silly things. Right. I mean, you know, ones can say they're silly, but again, their silliness, if that's what it is, is right. has to be judged in light of what it's about. And it's always right. about that. About its fruit, by its fruit, rather. Yeah, than- exactly. And, you know, the other thing, too, the schizophrenia that I think we, we were talking about with Protestants, on the one hand, Protestants will believe that all these kinds of things could have, it did happen. Mm-hmm. They just don't happen anymore unless you're a Pentecostal. In right. which these things are happening all the time, but they don't all point back to anything. That's what you're going right. to, you know. So in the Pentecostal church, it's like, well, then this thing happened and they were going to run out of gas. And then God right. miraculously let the car drive for another 200 miles with no gas in it. And this other guy had this happen. And so God is just sort of doing all of these things. But again, they don't point back to. What you're saying is, is a, is, um, uh, you're putting words to something I felt when I was involved in the Pentecostal charismatic world for a long time. Um, I was always uneasy with people getting up and saying these things, but I couldn't really, I couldn't put my finger on it. I think I was 
sitting there thinking, well, okay, but so what? What is what is that? Does that prove that? What does it prove? I don't know. And what and what what fruit does that bear? Um, one of the things, um, the, the thing I think I'm going through today that I went through as I walked through the display, and uh, yeah, I was listen, I was watching the video and the people in uh, uh, the the priests and whoever they were interviewing over in Italy. Um, all believe the same thing. It's all, they're all part of the same thing. Um, the, the people from the 12th century, whoever, or whoever that I saw on the, on the displays, I'm, if I'm going to be a Catholic, I'm going to be part of that. And it's, and it's a really great feeling. That's not a feeling I get in the splintered world of Protestantism. Yeah. I, I like the way you put it. At the end of the day, one has to ask, so what? What does this add up to? Right. And one of the things I think that is consistent about the miracle, the Eucharistic miracles, and I would say the Marian miracles, is that they all add up to one thing and they all have a point. And the point is always and only right. to draw people in faith back to Christ. And in fact, I think that's one of the criteria by which the church measures whether right. these miracles yeah. are real. Because if it is something that, distracts people away from or use the term earlier aggrandize right. if it's self-aggrandizing if it's something that draws people away to other things or elevates other people or other points or other causes then it sort of diffuses people's faith but these are all things that concentrate people's faith to one thing and one thing only and right. that is the real presence of jesus christ when i would be presented with miracles in the charismatic world it was always with the feeling like, hey, you should see what I saw. I experienced this. I was part of this. And I would always feel bad that I, I never was a part of any of those things. And I, looking at this, now that you, we're saying this, I'm looking at this display today, I don't feel that way. I feel like, oh, that's really great. You know? We'll get in maybe in another episode too, to, in a sense, some of the weirdness of them. I know yeah. we want to talk about that because some of these things are a little weird. So there's the one where there was a priest uh, in the Middle Ages and he's walking across a, a little river or bridge and he slips and he's got the, the chiborium, the little yeah. chalice type thing that, that he carries because he was taking some of the uh, sacrament, the consecrated host to, to some sick people. And as he's walking across this little bridge or crossing the river, he slips and he drops three of the hosts and you know start calling him over because there's three fish that have... Uh, th the three hosts, right? Uh, each one yep. with one host and they all kind of come up to the bank and right. they've sort of rescued right. the hosts. And there's a part of you in which you can say, that's just so, seems so weird. Right. And you and I were talking offline that that was actually the weirdness of them to me as a feature, not a flaw right. of Catholicism because it feels to me like God still does things in real people's lives in real ways, but it's not the kind of story where you say, hey, the priest was really worried about money because he couldn't buy a new church bell. And then one day three fish came up with three gold coins in their mouths right. or, right? I mean, it's not that. It's only they were trying to preserve the presence of Christ. Right. And again, I think that becomes the consistent theme, which leads me to your first experience of adoration. Mm -hmm. So in adoration, of course, we take one of the consecrated, the priest takes one of the consecrated hosts 
mm-hmm. uh, puts it in a monstrance, like a little kind of yep. case uh, thing. Um, looks like a little sun. Right, kind of like, right. And he puts it on the altar. And then um, because we believe that that is the real presence of Christ, right, having been transubstantiated, in a sense, we just sit there and it's called adoration because we adore mm-hmm. Christ present before us. And you were saying different than, you know, praying in the retreat center where, you know, right. we're, you know we, we're getting sleepy or hungry and we're thinking about going to McDonald's and some of us actually did. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Some of us showed uh, some modicum of self-restraint, but nevertheless... Right. This was different because we believe you're actually present before Christ right. in a way that you aren't otherwise. Right. Because he really is there. And so I'm just wondering to ref- get you to unpack that a little bit more. I, I sat there thinking, well, this is big. This feels big to me. Um, this draws me into a much larger world sitting there. Um, it was really quiet in there, which is something I rarely experience. Um, I, I, I didn't have trouble with my mind wandering. I was sitting there thinking that, you know, um, the, the words of, um, the glory be kind of come to mind, you know, um, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, mm. you know, I'm, I'm looking at something that was in the beginning and is still and, mm. and always will be. And that's something really big that I'm a part of. And I was aware that the people sitting around me essentially believed the same things. Okay. So I could talk to any one of them. There were maybe four other people in the room and we would all be on the same page. I can sit in a service, um, a prayer service with, uh, in a Protestant church, and I just don't know what they believe. Yeah. And so am I sharing, what am I sharing with these people? I don't know. What are they, you know, but I, I felt like I knew exactly what I was sharing. I like to that, that sense of that, what you felt, because as a, as a Catholic, I believe, I am certain, mm-hmm. I testify that that blessed consecrated host in the monstrance mm-hmm. is the real presence of Christ, right? Through transubstantiation, right. that is the body of Christ right there. I'm eight feet right. from the body of Christ. Now, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly believe that with my mind. My question for you in your first experience of it, though, is did you feel that? Did it feel to you like you were in front of Christ? It did, keeping in mind that this is all very new to me. So I, I you know, I, I got barely any notice that I was going to go do this, right? You, when I got here, you, I sprung it on you. you sprung it on Intentionally. I, I didn't tell you when you came right. over to the parish today what I just told you I had a surprise for you. Right. Because I really wanted you to experience this without any preconceptions. Right. Which, which I am, uh, very good at uh, bringing. So, so I, it's all very new to me. And so I sat there thinking, thinking it through again, right. I'm learning all these things and I'm being asked to believe about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And I sat there thinking, basically, if this is true, then whoa, 
I'm actually, <laughs> this is pretty big. And, and then the feeling that I was, that the other people in the room definitely believed it, right? I assumed they were all members of this parish or whatever. Um, that was a, yeah, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a feeling of being drawn up into some, a feeling of being drawn up into something big and sort of universal and stretching way, way back, uh, which is, you know, something that I, that's not a feeling I ever get. Yeah. Um, well, as, as we've talked about before, that in the sacraments, God sort of punches a hole in space time and mm -hmm. we kind of connect in a material way with the immaterial and eternal. Mm -hmm. And the notion that, as we said in the Eucharist episodes we did for the podcast, that the eternal Christ, the eternal body of Christ is made manifest for us mm -hmm. right here, uh, physically, materially. Uh, that is a, a profound miracle, but it is transformational. And I think one of the things that strikes me or strikes me now that didn't, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is that this is fitting and right. In other words, why wouldn't God give us a way? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't Christ give us a way to connect with him? Mm -hmm. Now, this goes back to the fact that we are material beings. We, God, as C.S. Lewis once said, God likes matter. He invented it. Right. Whereas Protestantism so often feels to me like you're conceptualizing. It's, it's, good, it's good to think about Christ and it's right. good to feel, uh, in a sense, a sentiment. And, and to feel the immaterial presence of the Spirit. Right. But why isn't he here? Right. And so, so in a sense, he's here in every way except with us materially. And that, I think, is why Catholicism is profoundly incarnational. Because, right, Emmanuel in Hebrew, God with us. Mm -hmm. In the incarnation, he became, he came as, as, as the Gospel of John says, he came and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the difference is that Catholicism believes that in some very particular ways, he still dwells among us or makes himself present to us, not just as an idea, not just as a right. spiritual force, not just as a, um, a spiritual partner or friend or whatever, or through the, right. the Holy Spirit around us, but he's actually there, you know, in the sacrament, on the altar present with us. When we talked about the, uh, the practical advantages of Catholicism a while back, one of the things you talked about was all the touchstones. And that made a lot of sense to me. There is, this is something that I'm very drawn to is that this is a way I can actually connect. And there was something I could physically look at in the room, you know, uh, not even that, uh, well, and it, and it was the, the, the body of Christ. But it's just right there. I don't have to make up an image in my head or anything. It's right there for me to connect with. And, and that makes it far, I think, well, it's far easier to concentrate on it and, 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 and infer meaning from it, you know. Right. And for the Protestant who says, well, why do you believe that? I go, why wouldn't I? I mean, right. why wouldn't God do this? <clears throat> right. I don't push the ball yeah. back to the Protestants into the court. And say, who, who would say the burden on proof of proof is on me as a Catholic right. to prove that Christ is present in the Eucharist or present right. consecrated host. And I want to say, well, I think the burden of proof is on you to show me why he wouldn't be. 
I, you know, because I, it seems fitting and it seems right. There's a, in a different context, there's a, one of the great m- medieval doctors of the church once said uh, something close to, um, he did it because he could do it. It was fitting that he did it, could do it. And so he did it. Right. In other words, he could do it. It was, sh- it was worthy that he do it. Why wouldn't he do it? In other words, why wouldn't Christ be present with us and make it possible for us in the sacrament of the Eucharist or in adoration to have that material touch point with him? I'm, you know, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm asked to believe that there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and died and rose again from the dead. Well, I wasn't there. I'm being asked to believe that miracle without any direct eyeball evidence of my own, right? Well, but am I just going to stop it there? Well, I don't believe any other miracles. I don't believe in any of the other things. I just believe in that one. Well, and that's, and that's what those Eucharistic miracles on that exhibit are about too, that at a few times, well, 130, 135 times out of, out of 20 centuries. Right. So, you know, once every 140 years um, on average, Christ has, or God has chosen to, in a sense, pull the veil back and show us that he's really there. So you see those cases where the host was transformed into living flesh or whatever, or there was blood and they examined it and they go, wow, this is what it is. That's why wouldn't God from time to time, right. in a sense, do a miracle to verify that I am here with you? Why would I not? Why would I want to not believe those things? Yeah, I like that. Why would I not want to? And I think that's the thing that I, I'm trying to drive at that I want to say to my my former Protestant self or my Protestant friends, why wouldn't I believe it? And why wouldn't I want to believe it? And why wouldn't I think that God would be likely to do something like this? Right. So, so, you know, in my Protestant life, which is to say all my life, I I keep, I feel like I keep having those things taken away from me. Like, you know, they're just, they're just, well, okay, but you can't, you can't believe in those miracles. It ends up, it just ends up being kind of flat. Like, yeah. there's just nothing to hang on to here. I'm just, yeah. um, you know, well, this is better. So now you've had your first taste of adoration mm-hmm. and for you to know that that's always something that you can do, even before you enter the church, right? you can engage in adoration. And most churches will have a certain period of time, a week or a month mm-hmm. where the Blessed Sacrament is exposed for adoration in their mm-hmm. chapel or their church. And I know before I converted from time to time, I would go and just sit with the Blessed Sacrament for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or mm-hmm. an hour or whatnot. Uh, in Catholicism, a lot of times it's called a holy hour to spend one hour mm-hmm. with, with Christ. And a lot of times, you know, there's devotions like the first Fridays. Traditionally, the Catholic Church often, uh, the first Friday of each month, there are for a certain number of hours, the Blessed Sacrament is exposed in the church. And so you just know once a month on first Fridays, I can go by and spend right. 5, 10, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever I have in adoration and mm-hmm. prayer. And that is, like you say, one of those touch points that periodically just refreshes us. So hopefully that's something that you'll, um, you know, continue to experience. Yeah. Love to. Right. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. 
and email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com. <laughs>